The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 20th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer. The feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while, before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in their dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children. Speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes, they stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women wearing faded house dresses and sweaters came shortly after their menfolk, they greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing back up to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly back. Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his eldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, A little late today, folks. The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool. When Mr. Summers said, Some of you fellows want to give me a hand, there was a hesitation before two men. Mr. Martin and his eldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool, while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some piece of the boxes that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything being done. 
The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color in some places, faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his eldest son Baxter held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population had more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year the box was, was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set, it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of, of the lottery used, used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time, until now it was felt unnecessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this, in his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box. He seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Miss Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Miss Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Miss Hutchinson went on. Then I looked out the window and the kids were gone. Then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron and Miss Delacroix said, You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there. Miss Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the woods and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Miss Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Miss Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Miss Hutchinson said, grinning, Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink, now would you, Joe? And soft laughter rang through the crowd, and the people stirred back into position after Miss Hutchinson's arrival. Well now, Mr. Summers said soberly, Guess we better get started. Get this over with so as we can go back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar. Dunbar. 
Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess a woman said. And Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Miss, while Miss Dunbar answered. Horses not but sixteen yet, Miss Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Senior Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding, then he asked. Watson boy drawing this year. A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said. I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow lack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. Already, he called, and I'll read the names, heads of the families first, and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it, until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking round. And then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams, man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said. And Mr. Adams said hi. Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorously and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said. Anderson. Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Miss Delacroix said to Miss Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through the last one, only last week. Time sure goes fast, Miss Graves said. Clark. Delacroix. There goes my old man, Miss Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Miss Dunbar went steadily to the box, while one of the women said, Go on, Janie, and another said, There she goes. We're next, Miss Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Miss Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Miss Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert, Hutchinson, get up there, Bill, Miss Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones, they do say, Mr. Adams said to the old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to live in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while, used to be a saying about lottery in June. Corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chicken weed and, corn and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Miss Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdeck. Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Miss Dunbar said. 
Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. 77th year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said, as he went through the crowd. 77th time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summer, holding a slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows, for a minute, no one moved. And then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take a paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Miss Delacroix called. And Mr. Graves said all of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said. I was done pretty fast. Now we got to be a hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Billy said, you draw for the Hutchinson's family. You got any other households in the Hutchinson's? There's Don and Ava, Mr. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family, that's only fair, and I've got no other family except the kids, and as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation, and as far as drawing for a household is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr., and Nancy, and little Dave, and Tessie, and me. All right then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Miss, Miss Hutchinson said, as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't... The little town straggling up the hill was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. He was leaning over the railing of the iron bridge, staring down moodily at the black water. The current eddied and swirled like liquid glass. Occasionally a bit of ice detached from the shore would go gliding downstream to be swallowed up in the shadows under the bridge. The water looked paralyzingly cold. George wondered how long a man could stay alive. The glassy blackness had a strange hypnotic effect on him. He leaned still farther over the railing. I wouldn't do that if I were a quiet voice beside said. George turned resentfully to a little man he had never seen before. He was stout, well past middle age, and his round cheeks pink in the winter air, as though they had just been shaved. Wouldn't do what, George asked sullenly. What you were thinking of doing. How do you know what I was thinking? Oh, we make it our business to know a lot of the stranger said easily. George wondered what the man's business was. He was a most unremarkable little person, the sort you would pass in a crowd and never notice, unless you saw his bright blue eyes, that is. You couldn't forget them, for they were the kindest, sharpest eyes you ever saw. Nothing else about him was noteworthy. He wore a moth-eaten old fur cap and a shabby overcoat that was stretched tightly across his paunchy belly. He was carrying a small black satchel. It wasn't a doctor's bag, too large for that, 
and not the right shape. It was a salesman's sample kit. George decided distastefully that the fellow was probably some sort of peddler, the kind who would go around poking his sharp little nose into other people's affairs. Looks like snow, doesn't it, the stranger said, glancing up appraisingly at the overcast sky. It'll be nice to have a white Christmas. They're getting scarce these days. So are a lot of things. He turned to face George squarely. You all right now? Of course I'm all right. What made you think I was? George fell silent. Before the stranger's quiet gaze, the little man shook his head. You know you shouldn't think of such things. And on Christmas Eve of all time, you gotta consider Mary. And your mother too. George opened his mouth to ask how the stranger could know his wife's name. But the fellow anticipated him. Don't ask me how I know such things. It's my business to know. That's why I came along this way tonight. Luckily I did too. He glanced down at the dark water and shuddered. Well if you know so much about me, George said, give me just one good reason why I should be alive. The little man made a queer chuckling sound. Come, come, it can't be that bad. You got your job at the bank and married and the kids. You're healthy and young and, and sick of everything, George cried. I'm stuck here in this mud hole for life, the same dull work day after day. Other men are leading exciting lives, but I, well, I'm just a small town bank clerk that even the army didn't want. I never did anything really useful or interesting, and it looks as if I never will. I might as just as well be dead. I might better be dead. Sometimes I wish I were. In fact, I wish I'd never been born. The little man stood looking at him in the growing darkness. What was that you said? He asked soft. I said I wish I'd never been born, George repeated firmly. And I mean it, too. The stranger's pink cheeks glowed with excitement. Why, that's wonderful. You've solved everything. I was afraid you were going to give me some trouble, but now you've got the solution yourself. You'd wish you'd never been born? All right, okay. You haven't. What do you mean, George growled? You haven't been born, just that. No one here knows you? You have no responsibilities, no job, no wife, no children? Why, you haven't even a mother. You couldn't have, of course. All of your troubles are over. Your wish has been granted officially. Nuts, George snorted and turned away. The stranger ran after him and caught him by the arm. You'd better take this with you, he said, holding out his satchel. It'll open a lot of doors that might otherwise be slammed in your face. What doors and whose face, George scoffed. I know everybody in this town. And besides, I'd like to see anybody slam a door in my face. I guess I know the little man, said patiently. But take this anyway. They can't do any harm, and it may help. He opened the satchel and displayed a number of brushes. You'd be surprised how useful these brushes can be as introductions, especially the free ones. These, I mean. He hauled out a plain little hairbrush. I'll show you how to use it. He thrust the satchel into George's reluctant hand and began. When the lady of the house comes to the door, you give her this, and then talk fast. Say, good evening, madam. I'm from the World Cleaning Company, and I want to present with you this handsome and useful brush. Absolutely free. No obligation to purchase anything at all. After that, of course, it's a cinch. Now you try. He forced the brush into George's hand. George promptly dropped the brush into the satchel and fumbled with the catch, finally closing with an angry snap. Here, he said, and then stopped abruptly, for there was no one in sight. The little stranger must have slipped away in the bushes growing along the river bank, George thought. He certainly wasn't going to play hide-and-seek with them. It was nearly dark and getting colder every minute. He shivered and turned up his coat collar. The street lights had been turned on, 
and Christmas candles in the windows glowed softly. The little town looked remarkably cheerful. After all, the place you grew up in was the one spot on earth where you could really feel at home. George felt a sudden burst of affection, even for the crotchety old Hank Biddle, whose house he was passing. He remembered the quarrel he had had when his car had scraped a piece of bark out of Hank's big maple tree. George looked up at the vast spread of leafless branches towering over him in the darkness. The tree must have been growing there since Indian time. He felt a sudden twinge of guilt for the damage he had done. He had never stopped to inspect the wound, for he was ordinarily afraid to have Hank catch him even looking at the tree. Now he stepped out boldly into the roadway to examine the huge trunk. Hank must have repaired the scar or painted it over, for there was no sign of it. George struck a match and bent down to look more closely. He straightened up with an odd sinking feeling in his stomach. There wasn't any scar. The bark was smooth and undamaged. He remembered what the little man at the bridge had said. It was all nonsense, of course, but the non-existent scar bothered him. When he reached the bank, he saw there was something wrong. The building was dark, and he knew he had turned the vault light on. He noticed, too, that someone had left the window shades up. He ran around to the front, and there was a battered old sign fastened to the door. George could just make out the word, for rent or sale. Apply, James Silver Realist. Perhaps it was some of the boy's tricks, he thought wildly. Then he saw a pile of ancient leaves and tattered newspapers in the bank's ordinarily immaculate doorway, and the windows looked as though they hadn't been washed in years. A light was still burning across the street in Jim Silva's office. George dashed over to him and tore the door open. Jim looked up at him from his ledger book in surprise. What can I do for you, young man? He said in a polite voice. He reserved for potential customers. The bank, George said breathlessly. What's the matter with it? The old bank building, Jim Silva turned around and looked out the window. Nothing that I can see of. Wouldn't like to rent or buy it, would you? You mean it's out of business? Ah, for a good ten years. Went bust. Strange around these parts, ain't it? George sagged against the wall. I was here some time ago, he said weakly. The bank was all right then. I even knew some of the people who worked there. Didn't you know a feller named Marty Jenkins? Did you? Marty Jenkins? Why, he... George was about to say that Marty had never worked in the bank. Couldn't have, in fact. But when they had both left school, they had applied for a job, and George had gotten it. But now, of course, things are different. You would have to be careful. No, I didn't know him, he said slowly. Not really that. Then maybe you heard how he skipped out with $50,000. That's why the bank went broke. Pretty near ruined everybody around here. Silva was looking at him sharply. I was hoping for a minute maybe you'd know where he is. I lost plenty in that crash myself. We'd like to get our hands on Marty Jenkins. Didn't he have a brother? Seems to me he had a brother named Arthur. Art? Oh, sure. But he's all right. He didn't know where his brother went. It had a terrible effect on him, too. Took to the drink he did. It's too bad. And hard on his wife. He married a nice girl. George felt the sinking feeling in his stomach. Who did he marry? He demanded hoarsely. Both he and Art had courted Mary. Girl named Mary Thatcher, Silva said cheerfully. She lives up on the hill just this side of the church. Hey, where are you going? But George had bolted out of the office. He ran past the empty bank building and turned up the hill. For a moment, he thought he was going straight to Mary. The house next to the church had been given them by her father as a wedding present. Naturally, Art Jenkins would have gotten it if he had married Mary. George wondered whether they had any children. Then he knew he couldn't face him. Not yet, anyway. He decided to visit his parents and find out more about them. There were candles burning in the window of the little weather-beaten house beside you, and a Christmas wreath was hanging on the glass panel on the front door. George raised the gate latch with a loud click. 
A dark shape on the porch jumped up and began to growl. Then it hurled itself down the steps, barking ferociously. Brownie, you old fool, stop that. Don't you know me? But the dog advanced menacingly and drove him back behind the gate. The porch light snapped on and George's father stepped outside to calm the dog off. The barking subsided to a low, angry growl. His father held the dog by the collar while George cautiously walked past. He could see that his father did not know him. Is the lady of the house in, he asked. His father waved, waved toward the door. Go on in, he said cordially. I'll chain this dog up. She can be mean with strangers. His mother, who was waiting in the hallway, obviously did not recognize George opened his sample, grabbed the first brush that came to hand. Good evening, ma'am, he said politely. I'm from the World Cleaning Company. We're giving out a free sample brush. I thought you might like to have one. No obligation, no obligation at all. His, his voice faltered. His mother smiled at his awkwardness. I suppose you'll want to sell me something. I'm not really sure I need any. No, I'm not selling anything, he assured her. The regular salesman will be around in a few days. This is just, well, just a Christmas present from the company. How nice. You people never gave away such good brushes before. This is a special offer, he said. His father entered the hall and closed the door. Won't you come in for a while and sit down with us? His mother said. You must be tired walking so much. Thank you, ma'am. I don't mind if I do. He entered the little parlor and put his bag down. The room looked different, although he could not figure out why. I used to know this town pretty well, he used to make comments. You move some of the townspeople. I remembered a girl named Mary Thatcher. She married Art Jenkins, I heard. You must know of him. Of course, his mother said. You know Mary well. Any children? He asked casually. Two, a boy and a girl. George sighed audibly. My, you must be tired, his mother. Perhaps I can get you a cup of tea. No, ma'am, don't bother me, he said. I'll be having supper soon. He looked around the little parlor, trying to find out why it looked different. Over the mantelpiece hung a framed photo, which had been taken on his kid brother Harry's 16th birthday. He remembered how they had gone to Potter's studio to photograph the other. There was something queer about the picture. It showed only one figure. Harry, that's your son, he asked. His mother's face clouded. She nodded, but said nothing. I think I met him, too. She said hesitantly. His name's Harry, isn't it? His mother turned away, making a strange choking noise in his throat. Her husband put his arm clumsily around her shoulder. His voice, which was always mild and gentle, suddenly became harsh. You couldn't have met him, he said. He's been dead a long while. He was drowned the day that picture was taken. George's mind flew back to the long-ago August afternoon when he and Harry had visited Potter's studio. On their way home, they had gone swimming. Harry had been seized with a cramp. He remembered he had pulled him out of the water and had thought nothing of it. But suppose he hadn't been there. I'm sorry, he said miserably. I guess I'd better go. I hope you like the brush, and I wish you both a very Merry Christmas. There he had put his foot in it again, wishing them a Merry Christmas, and they were thinking of dead son. Brownie tugged fiercely at her chain as George went down the porch steps and accompanied his departure with a hostile, rolling growl. He wanted desperately now to see Mary. He wasn't sure he could stand not being recognized by her, but he had to see her. The lights were on in the church, and the choir was making last-minute preparations for Christmas Vespers. The organ had been practicing holy night evening after evening until George had become thoroughly sick of it. But now the music almost tore his heart out. He stumbled blindly up the path to his own house. The lawn was untidy and the flower bushes he had kept carefully trimmed were neglected and badly sprouted. Art Jenkins could hardly be expected to care for such things. When he knocked at the door, there was a long silence, followed by the shout of a child. Then Mary came to the door. At the sight of her, George's voice almost failed him. Merry Christmas, he managed to say at last. His hand shook as he tried to open the satchel. 
When George entered the living room, unhappy as he was, he could not help noticing the secret grin as the two high-priced blue sofa they had quarreled over was there. Evidently, Mary had gone through the same thing with Art Jenkins and had won the argument with him too. George got his satchel open. One of the brushes had a bright blue handle and very colored bristles. It was obviously a brush not intended to be given away, but George didn't care. He handed it to Mary. This would be fine for your sofa, he said. My, that's a pretty brush. You're giving it away free? He nodded solemnly. Special introductory offer. One way for the company to keep excess profit. Share them with its friends. She stroked the sofa gently with the brush, smoothing out the velvet nap. It is a nice brush. Thank you, I. There was a sudden scream from the kitchen, and two small children rushed in. A little homely-faced girl flung herself into her mother's arm, sobbing loudly as a boy of seven came running after her, snapping a toy pistol at her. Mommy, she won't die, he yelled. I shot her a hundred times. She won't die. He looked just like Art Jenkins, George thought. Acts like him, too. The boy suddenly turns his attention to him. Who are you? He demanded belligerently. He pointed his pistol at George and pulled the trigger. You're dead, he cried. You're dead. Why don't you fall down and die? There was a heavy step on the porch. The boy looked frightened and backed away. George saw Mary glance apprehensively at the door. Art Jenkins came in. He stood for a moment in the doorway, clinging to the knob for support. His eyes were glazed and his face was very red. Who's this, he demanded thickly. He's a brush salesman, said Mary. He gave me this brush. Brush salesman, sneered. Tell him to get out of here. We don't want no brush. Art hiccuped violently and lurched across the room on the sofa where he sat down suddenly. We don't want no brush salesman either. George looked despairingly at Mary. Her eyes were begging him to go. Art had lifted his feet up on the sofa and was sprawling out, muttering unkind things about brush sales. George went to the door, followed by Art's son, who kept snapping the pistol at him and saying, You're dead. You're dead. Perhaps the boy was right, she thought when he reached the porch. Maybe he was dead, or maybe this was all a bad dream from which he might eventually awake. He wanted to find the little man on the bridge again and try to persuade him to cancel the whole deal. He hurried down the hill and broke into a run. When he neared the river, George was relieved to see the little stranger standing on the bridge. I've had enough, he gasped. Get me out of this. You gotta get me out of this. Get me out of this. You got me into this? The stranger raised his eyebrow. I got you. I like that. You were granted your wish. You got everything you asked for. You're the freest man on earth. You got no ties. You can go anywhere. Do anything. What more can you possibly most terribly cold it was. It snowed. It was nearly quite dark, the last evening of the year. In this cold and darkness, there went along the street a poor little girl, bareheaded and with naked feet. When she left home, she had slippers on. It is true, but what was the good of that? They were very large slippers, which her mother had hitherto worn. So large were they, and the poor little thing lost them as she scuffled away across the street because of two carriages that rolled by dreadfully fast. One slipper was nowhere to be found. The other had been laid hold of by an urchin, and off he ran with it. He thought it would do capitally for a cradle when he some day or other should have children himself. So the little maiden walked on with her tiny naked feet that were quite red and blue from cold. She carried a quantity of matches and an old apron, and she held a bundle of them in her hand. Nobody had bought anything of her the whole live-long day. No one had given her a single farthing. She crept along, trembling with cold and hunger, a very picture of sorrow, the poor little thing. The flakes of snow covered her long, fair hair, 
which fell in beautiful curls around her neck but of that of course she never once now thought from all the windows the candles were gleaming and it smelt so deliciously of roast goose for you know it was new year's eve yes of that she thought in a corner formed by two houses of which one advanced more than the other she seated herself down and cowered together her little feet she had drawn close up to her but she grew colder and colder and to go home she did not venture for she had not sold any matches and could not bring a farthing of money from her father she would certainly get blows and at home it was too cold for above her she had only the roof through which the wind whistled even though the largest cracks were stopped up with straw and rags her little hands were almost numbed with cold oh a match might afford her a world of comfort she only dared take a single out of her bundle draw it against the wall and warm her fingers by it she drew one out how it blazed how it burnt it was a warm bright flame like a candle as she held her hands over it it was a wonderful light it seemed really to the little maiden as though she were sitting before a large iron stove with burnished brass feet and a brass ornament at top the fire burned with such blessed influence it warmed so delightfully the little girl had already stretched out her feet to warm them too but the small flame went out the stove vanished she had only the remains of the burnt-out match in her hand she rubbed another against the wall it burned brightly and where the light fell on the wall there the wall became transparent like a veil so that she could see into the room on the table was spread a snow-white tablecloth upon it was a splendid porcelain service and the roast goose was steaming famously with its stuffing of apple and dried plums and what was still more capital to behold was the goose hopped down from the dish reeled about on the floor with the knife and fork in its breast till it came up to the poor little girl when the match went out and nothing but the thick cold damp wall was left behind she lighted another match now there she was sitting under the most magnificent christmas tree it was still larger and more decorated than the one she had seen to the glass door in the rich merchant's house thousands of lights were burning on the green branches and galley-colored pictures such as she had seen in the shop windows looked down upon her the little maiden stretched out her hands toward them when the match went out the lights on the christmas tree rose higher and higher she saw them now as stars in heaven one fell down and formed a long trail of fire someone is just dead said the little girl for her old grandmother the only person who had loved her and who was now no more had told her that when a star falls a soul ascends to heaven she drew another match against the wall it was again light and in the luster there stood the old grandmother so bright and radiant so mild and with such an expression of love grandmother cried the little one oh take me with you you go away when the match burns out you vanished like the warm stove like like the delicious roast goose and like the magnificent christmas tree and she rubbed the whole bundle of matches quickly against the wall for she wanted to be quite sure of keeping her grandmother near her and the matches gave such a brilliant light that it was brighter than at noonday never formerly had the grandmother been so beautiful and so tall she took the little maiden on her arm and both flew in brightness and in joy so high so very high and then above was neither cold nor hunger nor anxiety they were with god but in the corner at the cold hour of dawn sat the poor girl with rosy cheeks and with a smiling mouth leaning against the wall frozen to death on the last evening of the old year stiff and stark sat the girl there with her matches of which one bundle had been burnt she wanted to warm herself people said no one had the slightest suspicion of what beautiful things she had seen no one even dreamed of the splendor in which with her grandmother she had entered the joys of a new year 